Welcome to the Directors Club Podcast. I'm your host, Jim Laskowski, giving you an episode here right at the very start of February, only due to the fact that uh, I'm going to be spending most of this month prepping for the big 1994 retrospective with Colin and Eric, which everybody looks forward to, and that will come out in uh, early March. But before that nostalgic madness begins, uh, I've kind of been delaying a little bit on this particular filmmaker, at least for the past three months, because life gets in the way or things kept coming up or I decided to do something else. But I've, I've delayed this long enough. And this includes my good friend and returning guest. We are both eager to discuss the work of another revered French New Wave filmmaker. I needed someone very smart and passionate about film to help me. Welcome back to the show, the great Kate Blair. Thank you. <laughs> That's very flattering. Oh, yeah. I, I just, I mean, I know you have a degree in this stuff, and <laughs> you you have a like a real sense of, you know, film history. And I, I know that we covered Agnes Varda, right, in the past. So it yeah, kind of makes sense. Yeah. To, it does um, make sense. And I am I am a huge, huge fan of this director. So I'm really, really grateful that you invited me to talk about him. I, do, I am very excited to do that. Yeah, he's another groundbreaking director of that same ilk, that same time and place. Uh, I know it's not just French New Wave, but he was considered, oh, Left Bank? Is that what they were sort of like grouped together? Want to say yeah, that. he and Chris Marker and Agnes Varda, I think, were the ones who were sort of like grouped together by historians as a subset of the yes. French New Wave called the Left Bank. Um, and I think none of them really would have agreed that they were involved in a new wave, <laughs> which is like what I kind of like about them. Um, and yeah, but they're all extremely brilliant and Renier in particular and Varda. I don't, I don't have favorites. I think they're all just incredibly brilliant filmmakers. I agree. Um, but I love that. I think if I'm remembering right, uh, Renier, like he was an editor on Agnes Varda's Le Point Court. Um, and I think that kind of inspired him actually to make his own movies, which is really exciting. Yeah. He came at it from an editor. He also, you know, started out with an interest in theater, which makes complete sense, especially when you see him film like uh, last year at Marion Bad. But yeah, I mean, before we get to all that, though, I want to just ask really quickly, since it's been a while since we've connected, uh, you know, here on the show, at least, before we dive into the work of Renee, um, tell me what you've been up to lately. And have you seen any films from 2023 that really stood out for for you? Because we just did our year-end episode i'd be curious if you'd seen something that's uh stood out and really made a impact on you in any way yeah um 
I didn't do a great job keeping up. I haven't been doing a great job keeping up with contemporary films in general, but I did see Anatomy of a Fall and I really loved that. Um, and I'm really kind of obsessed with Sandra Hewler and I saw her in the zone of interest also. Um, <laughs> so those were like my two big 2023 movies. Um, but yeah, I really, really enjoyed anatomy of a fall. Um, I'd like to see it again. I just think, I don't know. Uh, I think the French courtroom drama is so interesting compared to the American one. Um, I don't know. Did you see this movie at all? I sure did. It made yeah. my top 10 of the year for sure. Um, I, yeah, I, I agree with the portrayal of a French courtroom is, is very interesting, very unique because I'm not used to like, sh- they're not necessarily like shouting matches, but they certainly interrupt each other to where there's, there's less monologuing, <laughs> you know, in, in American court, with with our lawyers, they they tend to do that. They just tend to just like speak one at a time, and and here it's more like a a conversation at times. Where like, oh wait a minute, I'll, let me interrupt here. And I was like, geez, right. this is very different than what I'm used to seeing in a courtroom drama. Right. Like I've definitely never been in a French courtroom, but I can't imagine that it's actually like that. <laughs> but I really. <laughs> Um, enjoy like the dramatics of it, the way it's portrayed here. Um, it was very silly, but um, mostly I just like was really, really impressed by the performances in it. And especially Sandra Healer, how just like, um, I don't know, you really just cannot, cannot tell <laughs> what happened there. She yeah. just does such a good job of sort of, I don't know, suppressing and hiding Um, and I just thought her performances in and out of the courtroom were really fascinating to watch. Plus the dog gives a great performance. Oh yeah. Oh, the dog should have been nominated. I mean, geez. (laughs) (laughs) Um, and yeah, just, I, I, um, I can't get over sort of the 50 cent. (laughs) I think that's, yeah. I just think that detail is like incredible. And I, just I'm never going to get over it that that's the song that's playing during the central incident of this film. Um, just like a wordless version of that. Um, yeah, I just really enjoyed pretty much all of that film. Um, and I'm also, I'm curious about what you saw that stood out for you this year too. Well, I, it's interesting because um, there's another great film playing at uh, the music box currently that, is a little bit in conversation with anatomy of a fall in that I think it's about not knowing a lack of closure and basically an, an, an inciting incident that we don't know the truth behind. And that's a a movie called the teacher's lounge, which, which, which is out of Germany. And I, uh, I wrote a review. I got to talk to the director and, that was th- like both that and anatomy of a fall, I think would make for a great double feature, but also the types of movies where you immediately want to talk to people about what they think happened. Mm-hmm. And I love that experience because the movie is not going to spell it out for you and you sort of have to come up with your own conclusions, but you know, and they're very character driven and they're, they're, they're sort of like these microcosms of the way society uh, <laughs> like, you know, 
the the way we we interact with one another and approach conflict or approach a certain situation from different perspectives is kind of captured in in both films and just like there's such anxiety about irresolution and not knowing and I I kind of went like these are the types of movies I think should be embraced should win awards because they're not spoon feeding you they're they're asking you to use your intellect but also at the same time you're completely emotionally immersed in what's taking place like you're you're really involved with it so mm-hmm. I, teachers lounge i think you absolutely will respond to and i think most people who have seen it have in some way or another it's it's you know it's kind of infuriating at times just because uh the way people react especially when children are involved um it could be really harrowing, you know? So, I mean, I recommend that, especially if you're a fan of anatomy of a fall, but zone of interest is one that I, it made my top 20, but I'm wrestling with it still. It's again, like a lot of movies these days. And I say this quite often where (laughs) I don't know if somebody just like a super cut of how many times I say this on the podcast, uh, it would probably be its own episode, but I need to see it again. Um, based on what, like, like it was just really hard to take. It was really hard to watch and I could see not wanting to watch it again because of how it affects you. But also, um, it, it was, it was just like, there's things about it that I was kind of surprised by. And I don't know if I entirely understood on a first viewing, um, including, I mean, I get what happens at the end and we don't necessarily need to go into great spoiler detail about like a a certain jump ahead in time, which I thought was incredibly powerful in that film. No, totally. Uh, Yeah. Probably one of the best moments of the entire film, but still just, um, there are those, uh, night vision scenes. Uh Yeah. Ooh. Yeah. There's just like things throughout that movie and the sound design and the score. Like, I think it's, it's, it is a lot like when I saw under the skin in that, I don't know if I entirely understood everything he's going for thematically, but like on a technical level, um, it's, it's kind of incredible. And that's what I, I always look forward to his work because, and he doesn't make that many movies, but I'm always kind of astonished by everything surrounding the way he tells a story. It's just the camera work, the acting. I mean, just everything about it kind of floored me, but I didn't feel like a sense of, shock and awe in the way that I thought I might, but I think that's also part of the point <laughs> of the film is to mm-hmm. not, because the, the, you know, we're not seeing it's all suggested. It's not really taking place right in front of us. We just kind of know based on context, what's taking place in that film. But right. Definitely. Yeah. It's challenging. It's very challenging. So, I mean, that one definitely, but I mean, the, the movie I've, talked about extensively already on the last episode, but it's still something I hope people will make an effort to see. Uh, It's called Falcon Lake, which is out of Quebec and a movie. I, I really think you'll strongly respond to Um, you can live forever, which is also, I want to say it's out of Quebec. It might be just uh, Montreal or, or Toronto. I can't, I can't remember specifically where it's from, but it's, that's, you know, that's, that's a queer love story, uh, that takes place in the, I want to say mid to late nineties. And it involves 
one of the characters who's religiously devoted, um, becoming a Jehovah's Witness and is experiencing a lot of pressure from the family and is afraid to come out um, and then develops um, a relationship with with somebody that is just I like it, it was just one of those movies where I'm watching and I go I've I've experienced something like this at around the exact same time so it's partially like a coming of age both movies are kind of a coming of age story but it's just about first love like both movies are about mm-hmm. first like the first time you really felt something for somebody else and both movies just sort of captured it so beautifully uh and I just I just, I guess I just love movies about first love because <laughs> those were the ones those were the two that topped my list um yeah and i also think you'll you'll really appreciate them i really want to explore just based on that like more canadian cinema because every time i like i I come across something from that country i'm like wow this is really speaking to me and i was i've i've been a huge fan of denis villeneuve going all the way back Mm -hmm. to like his early films so I actually picked up a book via interlibrary loan through the Chicago Public Library, <laughs> uh, all about Canadian cinema. That I'm just gonna like, qu- kind of like go through and jot down some some titles and sort of make my own watch list for the year. Yeah, that's fun. I mean, Cronenberg is a my favorite Canadian director, probably. Oh yeah, yeah, definitely a strong example. Yeah, lots of good ones. Yeah, for sure. But no, I'm I'm glad you you got to catch up with those those particular movies cuz oof, but <laughs> it's it's a lot to take. You know, especially yeah, I I mentioned that the uh the reenactment with the dog moment in Anatomy of a Fall. It's just oh boy. Oh yeah, that palm dog um win was deserved for sure. <laughs> Yeah, and uh, that the, the young boy, Milo Machado Grainer, who plays Daniel. Wow. Mm-hmm, another, yeah. Another great. Yeah, that that kid was really good. So, do you think she did it? <laughs> <laughs> um, man, I don't know. I mean, I don't. It's also not the point. I don't think. I, I yeah, it's not the point, and I think, but I think. Um, I think my answer is like kind of both. And that's like how the film left me is it's kind of like, um, it was both. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I don't know. I like that answer. Um, also I, I, past lives. Have you caught up with past lives? No, but I do want to see that. Yes. I, I can pretty much guarantee you'll, you'll love that one as well. Yeah. I've heard great things about that. Yeah, it was it was a pretty good year. I got to say like in, you know, I mean I think I said this in the episode but also just there were a lot of very good movies, but I wouldn't say like there was all out and out masterpieces to make it like a stellar year for cinema where it was just like, "Oh my god, I can't believe we got this movie and that movie and this movie." You know, cuz we've been spoiled some years like 1999 of course and 2007. There's just movies like you you, you when you've see a bunch of masterpieces it's kind of rare so i still say it's a good year for movies when you can get a bunch of very good movies and a few of them being great movies all in one year so yeah it just occurred to me everyone's doing retrospectives of 1999 is that because it's been 25 years 
Oh wow! Yeah, I, I, I guess so. I, ha- you're right. I, I hadn't thought of that, but that it's geez. I mean, we're probably gonna get inundated now with that. I mean, we always go back thirty years to go, you know, to do our own little retrospective. And 1994, I don't know if I would say it's an incredible year for movies because a lot of them that I've gone back to are just fine. <laughs> Whereas, I mean, I mean, it has there's some uh, unbelievable groundbreaking films and certainly the uh the the whole forrest gump versus pulp fiction debate of the time of that year was kind of interesting and it still is really um because there are people who kind of say one is better than the other and i have a hard time saying like i i don't know i'm weird i like i love them both so (laughs) uh but yeah and it was just that was kind of the first year too where i officially decided that i just want to see as many movies as i can because I saw Pulp Fiction. So, 1994, interesting year. It'll come up in greater detail, probably an overlong episode in about a month. So, I hope people are excited for that. And, uh, yeah, I mean, I'm just excited to see what, what this year has in store. Because it's it's kind of a, yeah, I'm hearing interesting things out of Sundance already. About mm-hmm. certain titles. So, um, I forgot. Got her name. Um, actually, it might be they, but the uh, the director of "We're All Going to the World's Fair." Oh yeah, Jane Schoenbrunn. Yes. Um, yeah, they do have another film coming out, I think. Um, and it has which musician in it? It has the snail mail musician in it. Really? Oh, I didn't know that. Something like that. Yeah, yeah. I'm always excited about their movies for sure. Yes. Yes. I'm very excited for that too, man. Anyway, let's go ahead and talk about uh, the director of this episode. Cause we've got quite a few titles and some of which I would say are a bit of an, are kind of enigmas <laughs> to piece mm-hmm. together. And like we mentioned, uh, he sort of started out having an interest in theater, but then he transitioned into being an editor and then around like the late forties, he kind of initiated a series of short films, uh, all kinds of subjects, everything from Van Gogh to um, uh, Pablo Picasso's painting and a couple of other interesting things that I'll, I'll talk about later for sure. But like his short films is where he started out with. And I think he's collaborated with Chris Marker on a couple of them as well. So, yeah, I mean, that's basically where he started out with to the point where, um, the first feature film we're going to be discussing was commissioned as a documentary initially. Uh, that's Hiroshima Monomore, of course. And it, it makes sense because, you know, he, the film, the short film that sort of put him on the map is the incredibly harrowing night in fog. Um, speaking of zone of interest and Mm -hmm. it, yeah, it's, it's, it's again, an incredibly difficult watch, but a vital one. I mean, it just, it's something that when you see it, you will never forget it. And it showcases his strengths as, you know, a storyteller in the, in the short narrative form. And it kind of makes sense to why he would be asked to do something similar with what happened in Hiroshima, but that it sort of evolved 
on its own in a way once he brought on um, French writer Marguerite Duras. Uh, what was your first experience with Renee? Was it Hiroshima Manamor? Um, my first experience was Marie and Bod, and I and oh. I watched both that and Hiroshima um, as an undergrad um, in different film classes, but as an undergrad. Um, and but I fell in love with Hiroshima, especially immediately. I really really love this movie. I have a problem. I have a really hard time choosing favorite movies. Um, but this sure. definitely every time I'm asked like what some of my favorite movies are, this one comes up. So I feel pretty safe in saying um, it's one of my favorites. Um, it's so beautiful to me. Um, and I actually, I have a poster of this on my wall. Um, <laughs> I just like really love this movie a lot. Um, and I think I, having watched a lot of Renier recently, I don't think he's like unemotional, but I think this is maybe his most emotional film to me. Um, I feel like this one really expresses love in the purest way, in a way that's really beautiful. It's very, um, I don't know, in addition to being incredibly political and incredibly dark, it also is just like a beautiful, beautiful love story. And one of my favorite love stories that's ever been on film. Um, so this is like the main reason I was really excited to talk to you about this director. Cause I love this movie so much. I love all of his movies, but this one in particular. Um, but yeah, what about you? What was your first time seeing this? Um, yes, I, I had heard a lot about this film. Um, and it's interesting because I didn't know what to expect, especially since the score that kicks in, you know, very early on, I was like, Whoa, I, I don't know if I've ever heard a score like this before. This is kind of eerie and unusual. I, it, it really took me aback at first and it, you know, going back and watching all of his work, you do really get a strong sense of thematic coherence in terms of, what he's interested in for sure, because there's certainly uh, this idea of like memory being a shadow that follows us everywhere mm-hmm. is kind is kind of something that he's talking about, like nearly every film, the sense of time and displacement and, and how we're, you know, carrying these memories along with us, along with a sense of guilt, but also the fact that memory changes over time. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, it, it's, it's interesting to revisit this movie, um, especially after watching a bunch of his work, because to me, you're absolutely right in that it feels like, like, like it does feel like the, the movie that, emotion is at the center instead of just, you know, the usual thematic interests. It's more, it's, it it does feel like it's about feeling a lot and these characters are feeling a lot. And the, I mean, I think almost the, the very first couple of lines kind of sums up a lot of his work in that, you know, one character says, or she says, um, I saw everything. I saw everything. And he says, you saw nothing. You saw nothing. 
in Hiroshima. And it's sort of like the paradoxical nature of remembrance and two different perspectives from two different life experiences, but they're also intertwined together. They're also experiencing the same feelings of desire together. Uh, and it's just, it's, it's really powerful to watch these two people, even if a lot of it is just them having conversations together, but that opening sequence is one of the most incredible things I've ever seen in a movie period. <laughs> like yeah, just, absolutely. just the um, contrast, of course, that's kind of something that's pretty obvious when you're watching it, just the ashes turning into dew and sweat and just like that whole, whole thing is just unreal. I, I kind of, I need to see this on the big screen. Just for that, just for that, like just for that whole opening. Um, and yeah, I mean, it just, I, I don't know. I don't know if it's because of having, you know, um, the, you know, the writer who wrote the screenplay really brings a sense of longing and loss in a way that does feel a little bit more, um, I guess, engaging on an emotional level than some of his other films. Like a, a lot of his other films to me feel like puzzles, but not, not necessarily like I don't feel a sense of overwhelming love <laughs> going on between characters, even though it's there at times. But this one is just really about um, the impermanence of memory and wanting to try and keep uh, like a sense of love even though they've been through so much, you know, these two people have been through a lot and they're trying to stay in the present, but the past keeps interfering, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, it does feel like the, like this dance between the macro level tragedy of war and their own personal traumas that they've been through. So it's it's just a really like complex experience though. I mean, I kind of I get this movie, but I'm also just like amazed that it was made. I'm amazed by the choices made throughout, you know, and it does feel like like poetry and classical music and just uh, like I feel so much watching this movie that uh it's it's kind of overwhelming to experience. It is definitely overwhelming. Um, yeah, but, and yeah, I almost feel like when I, when I think about this movie, what I do think about is that first the opening sequence more so than the rest of it. I think there's just a lot happening in the opening sequence and that shot that you talked about where they're entwined mm -hmm. um, and just sort of glittering <laughs> is just um, really encapsulates the whole experience of watching it to me. And I think, I don't know, there's something really strange going on there. And I think, I feel like in the movie, they sort of come to encapsulate sort of their different um, nations. Like she kind of is like representing France and he's kind of representing Japan and both of the like just traumas that both of those nations experienced. Mm -hmm. um, and the deep close up on their bodies just makes me think sort of of a map in a way um, where you're just kind of like, I don't know. It is very, it's just um, very poetic. Like you said, the whole thing. Yeah. And just, you know, the use of 
flashback or just like just intercuts here and there. It it really does feel like how I would think. Well, I mean, certainly I've experienced a form of PTSD where it's like some things will remind you, like hands. Hands is a big thing in this movie, <laughs> mm-hmm. um, and just like she'll be seeing her lover's hands on the bed, and then suddenly she'll immediately think back to her um, German lover's hands. Like little, uh, little yeah. things like that are just like, ooh, they cut so deep and they feel so real. And it's, it's, yeah, I mean, I think it's one of the best movies I've ever seen about that sort of interruption of, of memory. Like you can't fully be present because that those things are so embedded into your psyche that they almost just like the past won't let you actually be in the present in the way. And I mean, she's, she went through so much, he went through so much and we're sort of experiencing it in a way that I think makes the most sense, even if it is kind of disjointed at times. I mean, that's certainly true of his, uh, some of his other work where the editing is so like elliptical and oftentimes random to where it, you're almost put in the mindset of somebody who's struggling to remember or struggling to be in the moment. Yeah, that's really true. I like that interpretation. Yeah. And, and and just like how how they really are trying to heal and move on and they can't and and you know, I think but at the same time there's there's a feeling of hope that maybe their their connection will somehow make things better or ma- more manageable for the future. I don't know how do you feel about the ending of this movie? Because on one hand, it's like there's that moment where they're sitting like separately at first in that cafe and, you know, s- some other guy is hitting on her <laughs> mm-hmm. and I, it's almost like he's sort of accepting that, you know, they need to move on and they're not going to really have a full connection and it's never going to be fully realized. And part of me is like, that's probably how it should end. But then they end up meeting in the room together again. And they both sort of like, I don't know, summarize who they are or their characters or what they've been through by just saying like, you are this, you are Hiroshima, you are Never. Um, It's kind of Mm -hmm. like interesting to suddenly call them about by their cities. Like that's what they're defined by in that final moment in a way. Right. Yeah. Well, how do you feel about the ending? It is very puzzling. Um, and just like in a lot of, oh my God, so many of his films end in a very puzzling way. Yes. Um, <laughs> I was just thinking of Wild Grass, which I just watched, which has the most puzzling ending, I think, of any of the ones that I've seen. Um, Agreed. But, Agreed. Uh, yeah, I mean, to me, it just kind of speaks to sort of what I was saying earlier, that they're kind of like, and what you were saying, that they're both sort of locked in their own historical perspectives of uh, of their experience of this war, which is, I think, what this is really about, this film. Um, and how I think a lot of the film is really them trying to, like, understand each other's experiences of, of the war when they're on these vastly different um, ends of it. Mm. Um, 
and both both of them are victims and both of them are also perpetrators in some sense these nations i think um in a way that i don't think like the u.s can really um think about in the same way (laughs) i don't think we were ever victimized in this way in the way like the um those countries were which is an interesting thing to watch this from the u.s perspective i think yeah um but uh yeah i just think it just makes me think of like two lovers, two nations, just sort of like examining their wounds in a way. And like, um, coming to terms in a way. Yeah. Irreconcilable Mm. differences in perspective and experience, which is, I think kind of what, um, Renee's films are all about. (laughs) Um, Yeah. yeah, but it's just, it is very puzzling and it just sort of ends like a poem does. I think, um, where I don't necessarily know how to interpret it. But what, what did you think of it? Well, that's the thing too. It's like, we, I mean, we were talking about, you know, anatomy of a fall earlier and just the ending, the ending notes that it kind of leaves you on is a feeling of ambiguity and maybe both happened. Maybe uh, like here it's, a, it's a sense of they could end up together or they could end up not together. And either way, I don't know if that's, good or bad. Like it's not one of those, it's not it's certainly not a rom-com where you're like, I hope these two end up together. They're so perfect for one another. <laughs> the film keeps telling me that they're perfect for one another. Uh, it doesn't have that sense of resolution. It doesn't have that sense of closure. And those are usually the types of, I'm, I've said this before too, but I'm kind of the opposite of my mom and that my mom wants a sense of, this is how the story ends. This is how it ends. These two people end up together or they don't here we don't get that. And I kind of appreciate that. I don't, I can't say for sure if they're meant to be, you know, it it does Mm -hmm. just feel like a sense of they're coming, they're, they're they're finding peace within themselves, but they also have awareness that it's still like what they've been through. The trauma is still there Mm -hmm. really. And I, I mean, I, I think that the, the wild thing about a lot of his movies is that I almost feel like these, his films are like these narratives in search of themselves. <laughs> I don't know how to, it's kind of a weird way to put it, but like it's in search of its own coherence or its own like meaning, but at the same time, like searching for the definitive meaning of what a movie means sometimes is kind of silly because we all come at it from different places and different experiences and it it just it's like one of those magic eye paintings or uh you know just a lot of these movies i feel like are difficult to just say it's definitely this or it's definitely that you know uh yeah. and, I, and i think he that i think that's what renee wants I, it's the same thing that david lynch like he'll never say well this the cowboy in the Mulholland drive represents this <laughs> you know he, lynch is never going to do that and i think I think he was definitely influenced by Renee in that sense of. Yeah, I was about to say it's. I'm glad that you brought up David Lynch because I think I thought of him a lot when I was watching these movies, mm-hmm. and I and I tried to Google this. I was like, is David Lynch like a known Renee fan? And I didn't find anything, but it's like it seems clear to me. <laughs> I don't know, um, especially with I think Providence reminded me a lot of Mulholland Drive for one thing. Hmm. Um, 
<laughs> yeah, but we'll we'll probably get there. Yeah. No, but he was, I mean, he was definitely influenced by surrealism and different things. Like, you know, it could Whoa. be poems and plays and writers and paintings. And I mean, he just, he sort of consumed the arts in a lot of interesting ways to where I think they just sort of fed into his subconscious whenever he, you know, told a story and had a lot of interesting collaborators. So, I mean... Yeah, it, it, it's it's just really fascinating to me that initially a documentary that was just going to be about, you know, the tragedy of Hiroshima suddenly became something completely different. Like he even said it sort of just evolved without like him sitting down to plan it all out. And that's what this film sort of feels like. This relationship is ever changing and becoming something else right before our eyes. And I, I love the experience of going back to it, but it's, you know, it's also, I mean, again, very similar to what I was saying about Night and Fog, just kind of harrowing, you know, because mm-hmm. you were seeing some imagery or even just some of the protest scenes where they're walking out on the streets and stuff like that. I mean, we're, we're this it's still happening today in all different walks of life in all different countries. There's still intense and horrific conflict that may never get resolved and I you know experienced a documentary too from last year called Beyond Utopia learning about what's going on in North Korea that really like kind of mm. shocked me in 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 ways like that mm. kind of made me also aware of the fact that yeah I'm kind of I'm politically ignorant to some degree where I don't keep up with what's going on in the world as much as I should but I mean it's still like I I mean I don't want to just say like oh I I, I get all my uh you know, education from documentaries, but I'm just grateful that they exist sometimes because I do get to learn um, a lot about what's happened. And certainly, you know, even as early as in high school, I feel like they showed us this, I don't know if it was a made for TV movie about Hiroshima where I think Pat Morita was even in it, but it was, I mean, like I saw that and I don't know if it was, it might even been like junior high or something where they showed us, a really devastating movie about the aftermath of what happened in, you know, in Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Mm-hmm. And that all oddly enough ties into, you know, what, what we just saw. I don't know if you, did you catch up with uh, Oppenheimer yet? I did not. Not yet. Yeah. It's just interesting how <laughs> this director is and, and, and a couple of his works you know, like some of the things that he was interested in and tackled on that early on in his career as a, you know, narrative storyteller or documentarian are things that we're still thinking about to this day. You know, just yeah. the trauma, the aftermath, the the things that have caused like a permanent wound on humanity. Uh, it's just... It's it's hard. It's really hard to go back to these movies sometimes, but at the same time, there's also just this like stunning portrayal of longing and desire in this movie too. So it's like they sort of I don't want to say it balances out, <laughs> but I almost feel like he is like trying to do that in some sense, where you know there is the personal and public tragedy intertwining with this this sense of real strong love and desire and connection. So it's like, right. there's good and bad in, in life. 
I do think um, he does that so wonderfully, that bridging of like the personal and um, personal and political doesn't seem right. But just, um, I guess, honing in on the fact that uh, global events happen because of individuals on some level or um, yeah, just honing in on these personal connections on the uh, backdrop of larger atrocities um, and how individuals are connected to them and affected by them, I think is something I really love about Renee as well. Yeah. I mean, also watching it this time too, though, I was, I was, a little struck that maybe the the uh, you know the Japanese doctor is almost like probing the uh, French actress in a way to like remember remember and uncover your your memories you know of what's happened don't 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 let go of them you know and I'm not saying like he's like oh you know I tell me about your tragedy or whatever over and over again but it just seems like. I guess it is just them trying to understand where each of their lives have been and what they've been through. It's not, it's not like something that he's inflicting upon her necessarily. It's more just like, again, trying to come to terms, but also empathize with each other's experience because they've experienced it in different ways, I guess. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But there's still like just the sense of guilt and regret that, I wonder if that's just always going to play a role and they may not experience like this sustained sense of satisfaction, even when they feel love because of what they've been through in the past. Let's just hope they can work through it. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. I I can't say for sure. And that's exactly what I love about the ending is it's, it's not telling you either way, but it's, it's a, it's a profound work of art. Without question, I mean, I, I, I have, I also have a hard time just like picking a, an absolute favorite of his because uh, certainly a short film that I'll just kind of like end on when we get to it. But the, just I, I, I sent you that sort of last minute because I was like, well, it makes sense why I would love this so much. <laughs> I didn't get to watch it. I'm sorry. That's okay. That's okay. Yeah. That's okay. But I it's, will. Hard, it's hard to watch everything. That's for sure. That's for sure. Shall we move sure. on? Ooh. Yeah. Okay. Uh, oh boy. Last night at Marion Bad. Mm. Wow. Another movie that. Um, I mean, the first time I saw it, I kind of went. I. I maybe it's just too smart for me. I don't know if I'm going to understand it entirely until like, I sort of just gave in and let it wash over me and let it, and like experience it as, yeah, like a, I don't want to say like a fever dream, but just, it does feel like a stream of consciousness dream where things are changing and not everything is making complete sense. Again, like really, really um, inspired and influenced by just surrealism and just making interesting choices throughout just because they feel um, right for the moment, even if they don't make narrative sense. Uh, But it's also, yeah, I mean, this is our introduction to his collaboration with 
someone else we we know and we've talked about in the past, uh, Delphine Sayrig, who mm-hmm. plays a woman with the letter A. That's the other thing, too, about a lot of his films. We don't always get character names. Um, but this is also based on... Well, I think it was originally going to be a play, but it was also like uh, this this writer, um, Elaine uh, Robbie Grillet, he's, mm-hmm. he's written a lot of interesting work in the past, and this was sort of like a collaboration between the two of them. Uh, and Yeah, I think he, he did some director directorial things, too. I think yes. I saw one of his films, and I didn't love it, but... I- <laughs> but I respect, I respect what he's trying to do. Well, he's, he's a provocateur and certainly, um, you know, delves into sexuality and on a very cerebral level, but also just gets really, mm, I don't want to say explicit. Maybe that's not the right term, but just, I don't know. Uh, it's, it's hard to like sum up like what I've heard about his work outside of, it being more intense and direct and often brutal. (laughs) Um, But that's the thing too, is like their collaboration here. It almost feels like Renee brought more of a sense of, I don't want to say humanity, but just he toned it down because originally it was going to be a little bit more provocative. It was going to include a sexual assault until Renee sort of Mm -hmm. stepped in and said, let's not include that that is going to take people out of this experience. Um, because I think the writer's original intent was to have that in there. And I, a lot of people interpret that. Um, and it's hard to like ultimately say what even I can sit down and say, this is exactly what this film is about. But I think it's just an experience. Like it's a movie where I just let it happen. And I try not to overthink or overanalyze it to death because I don't know if that's, that almost feels like an exercise in futility to ultimately come up with, this is exactly what this movie means. But I also find that to be a really incredible, invigorating experience when a movie doesn't spell everything out. Um, But yeah, I just, I don't know. I think this is one of the most, incredibly well shot movies I've ever seen. (laughs) I, I'm kind of in awe of a lot of just whether the camera's moving or not. It it's like, feels like a work of art. It's like, there's certainly that, that shot of course, with all the people standing there casting those shadows Mm -hmm. um, out in the courtyard kind of area. And I just go, guy, my God, who, who thinks the up something like that? It's just, remarkable like i mean there's that geometric garden and everybody's like a a tableau at times and everybody's kind of just like standing completely still uh and just yeah i mean it's like they freeze and they unfreeze in moments and i don't i couldn't tell you what it means or why it, it is that way it just it's just kind of a an enveloping film and yet at the same time, it really is about two people again. <laughs> it's about two people trying to figure themselves out and whether or not they've experienced something and what does it mean if they've met before or have they not met before at all? And who is the second man that keeps 
showing up but not really intervening in any way. Um, <laughs> yeah, who is that guy? Yeah, what's what's his deal? He just loves <laughs> to play that game. Uh, yeah. <laughs> it's called Nim, which, of course, once this movie came out, everybody wanted to try and play themselves. And I don't know if that, that, that game is, <laughs> I don't know if it's a metaphor for like, well, you're not going to be able to figure this movie out, so don't even try. But um, it's just, yeah, it's just a really disorienting movie that just happens to be really stunning to look at and just experience without necessarily trying to understand every little thing about it. Yeah. I definitely feel like um, it's trying to put you in a trance and you should just kind of go with it or go with the flow. Um, I, yeah, I, I loved rewatching this movie I don't think I'd seen it in maybe a decade or so. Um, and I don't really feel like I've learned anything since I watched it last. I was like, okay, <laughs> this is equally puzzling and equally like strange. Um, I do think to me, it does seem like there is a buried sexual assault in there. And to me, that's kind of like what a lot of it, um, it's hard for me to read it without that sure. <laughs> um, because I think that's part of what the two um, storylines are, what the two characters and that third random character are trying to come into alignment on. Like, was there an assault? Was there not an assault? Um, did you want this? Did you not want this? And I actually don't think that anyone knows the answers to any of those questions. No, um, we, we don't. And the characters don't. Yeah, exactly. Um but I also, um, I think one of the notes I wrote down when I was watching this again is that it just made me think of like the concept of a memory palace, yes, which is like um, just you know the concept, or it's like a memorization concept where you store memories in different parts of like a structure, and it's like easier to retrieve them because you're imagining the structure they're in. And to me, um, just being sort of trapped in this mansion. And they're constantly talking about, there's like this repetitive voice that's like the thick carpets that absorb sound, like the decorations from a bygone era that that just gets repeated over and over again. Um, and I feel like um, I'm in a malfunctioning memory palace or something, <laughs> like um, where the things you're remembering are kind of like lost all over the place. <laughs> and like, you've just become lost inside of it instead of it being um, a guiding structure in any way. Um, but it's just, yeah, like I said, I think giving yourself over to this confusion, I think is one of the beautiful things about this movie. Let yourself be confused. Yeah. <laughs> and don't get frustrated with it. Cause like, even sometimes I do feel a sense of like, why am I not getting this? Why is my brain not computing what this all means? Because I think that's what we come to stories hoping for. Or I don't, you know, we don't need that every time we watch a movie necessarily or sit down and read a book like, oh, I have to understand what everything means. Sometimes I do feel like, oh, no, what if I'm just intellectually inferior? (laughs) Like this movie and like some French New Wave movies are just working on a level that I can't possibly comprehend, maybe because I am not of that time and place and culture. You know, and, and that can happen with a lot of a lot of movies from other countries where it's just like there's a disconnect, you know. I also think that um, Renee just kind of like. I, f- 
feel like he doesn't know what's going on either. And he kind of just leads with his gut, which I appreciate. I feel like I read an interview with him that says something like this, where he's just like, I don't know what the broad story is. Like, I just kind of like put it together or like do it as I feel it. And I think (laughs) that made me feel better to read. I'm definitely paraphrasing. Um, But that like, and I think that's part of why he relies on other writers is that he's kind of like, I think his mind works in the way that like is reflected in these movies, like kind of moving all over the place. Um, but I think that might be part of why he works with other, with writers instead of writing his own stuff is that he like appreciates a structure. Um, yeah. I don't know. Yeah. I, I, I like what you're saying about the memory palace. It, it, it does feel like a kind of like a materialization of just the process of trying to remember, you know, and what happens when trauma informs that, like, cause I mean, you can come at it from the uh, perspective of the man. Maybe he's inflicted this trauma and he can't, come to terms with what he's done or he's trying to understand what happened and he can't entirely remember it. Or if we can come at it from the victim's perspective, what has she experienced and how come she can't remember it? And neither of them can come up with the correct recollection because memory is fallible. Memory itself is just something that can't entirely be trusted. Right. Yeah. And this whole film sort of feels like that experience, but also just like the frustration of that, of just like, Oh, I can't, I can't piece this together. And so you're a part of that experience as a viewer. Like I can't piece together what they've been through because they can't piece together what they've been through. Um, But yeah, I mean, it's, it's, do you think the narrator is, I mean, (sighs) That's the thing, too, is like initially I always think it was like, well, it's an omniscient narrator coming in to describe what's taking place or this environment and everything. But um, I don't know. Sharon actually thought that it's possible that it is the main man, uh, X, as he's known, Giorgio Albert Dezazi. Like he's kind of this is like almost like his dream his dreamscape or his memory palace trying to work through everything. Like it's come mostly from his perspective. Which that is kind of, kind of how, that yeah. is kind of how I read it. Yeah. 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 And I can, I can, I can definitely see that now having watched it a couple of times where it's, where it is mostly that experience and um, less about trying to figure out, well, why are all those pictures there in the drawer again? And why, why did it like she gets shot and now she's alive? And it's like, because we want to logically piece things together, but that's not, that's not this type of movie. You know, I mean, uh, it's, it's, it is kind of an amazing experience because anybody can walk away with it with, with a different interpretation. Um, again, another, another movie about the fallacy of memory (laughs) and just like what happens when something may or may not have happened that keeps coming into play. And I read another interpretation that this is actually like an institution and all these people are trying to help them work through their trauma in some way. And I guess M is like, well, the like Shutter Island. yeah, <laughs> that's pretty much what I was thinking too. 
Yeah. <laughs> it's kind of an interesting idea. But, I mean, it's clear that this, this movie has had, like, a huge influence on so many people. And, you know, uh, Kubrick, obviously. Yeah, for, I feel the like Shining. the stamp of this movie visually is all over the place. And that's what makes it such a special thing to watch. Yeah. The one I think of all the time is Melancholia. I feel like the mm. first sequence with... Um, what is the actress's name? Kirsten Dunst. Why, or, yes. Uh, why am I losing that name? Kirsten Dunst, um, where she has sort of a dream sequence where she's walking through a garden. It just has always reminded me of the garden ooh, in this movie. That's a good call. Yeah. Yeah. Um, things like, yeah. And things like the statues keep moving and you know, like you sort of, you can't, it's hard to get a sense of geography because things, it does feel like a maze, <laughs> you mm-hmm. know? And yeah, there's there's again like a sense of that them not fully coming to terms, but I don't know, like the the very ending of them walking to wa- walking away together. I don't I still don't know what to make of that. I still don't know what to make of the final sort of like resolution if there is one. I don't know. Mhm. But it's again like another examination of the ways in which we sort of attempt to narrate and figure out our memory um, and just the feelings that come with that. But boy, I mean, there, there's certainly a sense of, yeah, there was some sort of assault, I think, because even early on in the film, there's like people gathered together and one of them, you can overhear them saying one night he tried to get inside of her room. And then of course what happens later on, she, he tries to get inside her room and we may not see exactly what happened, but it's sort of, sort of implied i would say i mean that's something really bad (laughs) at the very least happened between the two of them um so yeah i don't know it's uh, i love it (laughs) and when it's over i just kind of go i love that experience even though if i can't tell you what everything meant outside of just kind of being in awe of it on a technical level where like some of the mirror shots i don't know how they pull it off Oh, yeah. I wanted to say, like, um, watching it this time around, it did remind me a lot of, like, uh, Carnival of... Is Carnival of Horrors? Is that what it's called? Carnival of Souls? Carnival of Souls. Yeah. Especially with the the organ music um, and just the start black and white. So, like, this time, a lot of it read horror to me in a way that I don't think it would have the last time that I watched it. Yeah. and there's also this one sequence with Delphine Seyrig where she's like sort of in this um, exaggerated white makeup and laughing. Mm. <laughs> that reminded me so much of um, of Inland Empire, the one mm. Laura Dern scene that I was like, that was another one of the moments where I was like, Lynch loves this guy. <laughs> or if like he doesn't, he should, um, you know? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. That's it. Yeah. That's a good callback. I mean, it's, it is, it is kind of, yeah, I mean, it, it creeps me out. It definitely has those moments of, yeah, I, I, I feel unnerved <laughs> watching everything play out the way it does. But it's also just like, yeah, you could see the influence on so many different things. And, uh, oh, and also, like, the, the, the organ score comes courtesy of Delphine Seyrig's brother. Isn't that interesting? Oh, no way. That's so great. I didn't yeah. know that. Yeah, I think he was kind of like a 
like a, just like last minute sort of Renee was like I need I need a I need a composer that can do what I want and cuz he was having trouble finding the right person to collaborate with and kind of got lucky cuz that's a very memorable score. I mean both both last night and and Hiroshima Manamore. I mean those scores are once you hear them you don't forget them. They're just so right, distinctive. Really, really interesting. Um yeah, it's just I I I often feel like he's really like trying to jar you awake when he's watching a movie. Like you can't be a passive viewer experiencing his work because it's, it's he's, he's like outright saying, Hey, you, you got to follow this and you got to try and stick with it uh, because it could p- potentially lead you to some great experience uh, of a work of art. And both of those movies in particular, I would say are strong examples of French new wave at its best. Mm-hmm. Muriel is interesting too. Let's get to this because I, um, I, I I almost feel like this whole episode, we could just like edit it weird and just have like it jump all over the place and confuse people, but I wouldn't do that. Um, but this, this is a, a movie that at times I wouldn't say confused me, but it's just, uh, the editing choices at certain moments were just kind of like so kaleidoscopic and I later read that, like, oh, he basically just wanted to edit out 20 minutes of the movie that he didn't feel like was necessary to tell the entire story. And he just did it in this really kind of elliptical, kind of fast clip. Hmm. And kept, like, certain moments of certain scenes within the movie, but they're not in their entirety. <laughs> Which is just kind of like an odd choice. Like, he's sort of abandoning the rules of conventional editing. And I don't know if it's just because that's where he started out is just like, you know, throwing the rule book of what's expected when you tell a story anyway. Uh, but yeah, I mean, the whole film isn't like that. Obviously it's not entirely like this challenging feeling of chronological dislocation, but you know, we're, we're kind of in the mindset again of, of characters who are struggling with something that happened in the past. Uh, so, once again, we have Delphine Seyrig collaborating as Helene, who uh, lives in an apartment which doubles as an antique store, which I'm like, that's cool. <laughs> I love the yeah, setup. A, I love the setting quite fun. a bit. And what happens? Uh, oh, she's visited by a lover from her distant past. And that uh, particular lover arrives with his quote-unquote niece. Hmm who is actually not his niece. So yeah, like identity and flux and things kind of being subverted throughout this, this movie. But also we have her, um, her son who's, uh, gone through some sort of tragic, uh, trauma from, as a result of being in the war. Uh, and yeah, so, I mean, there's a lot of character dynamics and interesting interactions throughout, uh, you know, we, we do have less of his sort of tendency to, you know, have like these abstract visuals or, um, it's almost like it, yeah, very the, kind of the opposite of last year at Marion bad, where he does try to tell more or less a straightforward story. Wouldn't you say? Yeah, I think that's true. I do feel like there's a shift here towards like, 
or away from like the super puzzles and towards a more like um, concrete narrative. Um, But there's still a lot of puzzling stuff and there still is a lot of like time stuff. Mm -hmm. I don't know that he he doesn't like, he never does flashbacks or like, I don't think he ever really does, but I do. I also really love, I love the antique shop um, as a setting. And I think, if I remember correctly, he does do a lot of time. He takes a lot of time, like showing us that setting and like showing us like the clocks and like um, all these other artifacts that are like, they use, like they use them in their household. Like they um, don't own them because they could be sold at any moment, but like they use them day to day, um, which I think is really interesting. So they're just sort of in this like timeless zone. Um but they're also like, they're dealing with a lot of, yeah, a lot of different histories. Um, I think, I think the city they're in, I can't remember the name of it, but it was like pretty, it was a site of a lot of like conflict during the war. Um, And then, which I think they talk about a lot, like as in like it was bombed out or something. Um, Mm. So they're sort of dealing with like the repercussions of that. And then, the son, like his trauma is from the Algerian war or from like right. atrocities right. that he participated in, in that war. Um, so there's just kind of like a lot, um, I don't know, a lot of tragedies kind of re- refracting off of each other in a way that I think is really interesting. And that is like sort of underlined by this um, antique store where everything is from a different era and they don't really know where to ground themselves in time. Mm. Um, I really like this one. I like them all, but I think I have a special, I think I have a special place in my heart for Muriel. Um, and Jatem, which we'll get to, but. Oh yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, I don't, this one I don't know. Like, I, I wouldn't like, again, I'm going to watch it again. And so at some point in the future, for sure. I think mm, it, it was, I didn't get as emotionally invested or like kind of, I, I guess that's where I often come to with a lot of films that I don't immediately connect to is like, I just, I want to experience, you know, some sort of compassion or empathy for the characters involved. And it's not that I didn't, I just didn't feel, and I wouldn't say it like left me emotionally cold, but I didn't necessarily get as involved with the relationships or feel a sense of, the kind of longing you get in the other films. Yeah, I think that's definitely true. There's some distance in it. Yeah. Um, and I think to me, maybe it is a lot more about settings for this one to me, like in the house and then walking around the neighborhood, like in the city that they're in. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. It does feel a very, like it does feel a lot more distant and more, it does have a puzzly aspect though, where yeah. like it takes a while to get, um, it just, it takes a while to get to the knowledge that the son has done this thing <laughs> to right. Muriel. Um, and I think it's interesting. It's really interesting always to me that the film is called Muriel, like really centering that buried thing that's at the heart of this movie that really 
you see like documents about her throughout. Mm-hmm. Um, but like you really, and you hear like a voice of her talking about it, but like, she's really not, um, I don't know. Yeah. She is like a very buried thing. So yeah. it's like <laughs> this very evasive narrative where all these other things are happening. But then what the movie is, I don't know, seems to actually be about is this buried story of Muriel. Um, And that's, I feel like I need to watch it again to sort of like pick that out. Yeah, I kind of agree. I I mean, I, my assumption before even starting it was that, you know, Delphine Seyrig was going to play Muriel. (laughs) Right. And I feel like even I've watched this before and somehow that didn't stick with me. I was like, Oh yeah, Delphine Seyrig, she's Muriel. And then I was like, wait, that's not (laughs) what's happening at all. Yeah. He gets playful like that. Like he kind of sets things up a certain way and then says, Nope, that's not how it's going to go this time. And then he, he, he like, he does a lot of the like sort of fast close-ups of objects and body parts into dialogue scenes and repeats certain footage and jumps around in time and interrupts musical interludes just as they begin, which I always kind of like in movies where it just feels like, Whoa, why'd you stop there? You know, like just that. I mean, again, it's like, he's trying to shake us up a little bit, like shake us up and kind of make us more aware of what he's doing as a storyteller that I guess can bug some people. Like it could take you out of the actual story without being like kind of immersed in what's taking place. But I always find like those kind of audacious choices to be interesting and of themselves to where I, I I don't, I don't know. Like sometimes I don't get why you make that choice or why he does what he does, but I just find the choice in of itself. Interesting. (laughs) Um, Including just like, yeah, Muriel's almost like just this kind of apparition haunting all the characters, whether they know it or not. Um, yeah. But it's, yeah, and I mean, there's the incident, you know, I, a, a torture of a, you know, that he, that the son was involved with. And again, not, not necessarily uh, has a clear indication of you know, how things are going to resolve themselves either with, uh, you know, the, the previous relationship that he, that Helene had, they, but they also have very similar to other movies, kind of different interpretations of their own previous relationship together. It's kind of interesting how once again, remembrance is very flawed in the way they communicate to each other and have different feelings and ideas of what's happened. But I don't know. I uh, I thought that you know the final moment was again a big more of a question mark where um, I forgot. I think it's Simone comes to the empty apartment and she's searching for for him and he's not there and the camera sort of follows her through the rooms until she realizes that nobody's home. Uh, and yeah, I guess, you know, the camera just sort of stops and maybe suggests like this new, new, new stories will take place in this particular space. And, mm-hmm. you know, we don't know what they will be and we don't know if it'll be good or bad. It's just people will continue to be flawed and imperfect and make mistakes and not necessarily, you know, come to terms or learn from 
the past. I mean, that's just kind of how I thought of how things are in, in the end. But it's, I don't know, it's, it is kind of a puzzle in, in, in exactly what it's trying to say thematically. Yeah. But, but that's not a bad thing. I mean, I've, I, I welcome that more than like something being spoon fed again. Like I, I'd rather, it gives me reason to go back at some point in the future, as long as I find the experience of watching it pleasurable, which, which for the most part I did, I guess I was just a little bit more surprised that I didn't get a sense of really strong attachment to what the characters have been through. I just kind of let, again, another experience of letting the film just happen. Mm -hmm. I feel like um, with a lot of his movies, I enjoyed like looking back on them almost more than I enjoyed like the process of watching them, which is interesting. I'm just like, I feel like they, I don't know. They creep on you in this way. Um, We're like, you start to think about them afterward. I feel like wild grass especially has been like that. It's kind of funny because we talked a lot about memory and our memories of the movie. is probably not entirely accurate because you can't, you know, again, you're watching something. It's not, not every little thing is going to retain or stick with you. It's only like certain things or as, um, you know, I've often said like, I don't necessarily retain plots or the actual story, but how a movie made me feel, feel, you know, like, I think that's kind of the joy of going back to certain movies is like, Oh, I'm probably going to feel something even if it's a bad movie, <laughs> like I'll feel frustration. Um, like it's automatically, it's, it's guaranteed you're going to have an emotional response of some kind, even if it's indifference, you know, I mean, that's still, possible but i don't know i just kind of love the experience of trying to think back to certain moments or feelings that i get from from his work you're right i like i like just they may not necessarily be instant pleasure when you're watching them but when you think about them or you process them more later on that's kind of the joy As an aside, I feel like Saltburn was like the exact opposite of that. <laughs> Where it like gives you nothing afterward, but it like it like keeps your interest the whole way through, but then gives you like nothing to like really ruminate on afterward. But that's just an aside. <laughs> well, that movie kind of made me angry in that I was just like, that was just like talented Mr. Ripley, wasn't it? It was just like, I don't know. I don't know if I really got a whole lot out of that movie. <laughs> I absolutely didn't. But it like it like my compliment of it was that it kept my interest the whole way through. But then at the end, I was just kind of like, all right, like, <laughs> yeah, some movies are just empty experiences. But like, I mean, I'm not saying like that's bad either. Like if it's if you're compelled and you're interested while you're watching it, that's that's a good thing. Like being disengaged as you're watching something is really is really bad. Yeah. <laughs> but, it's still a win. It's still a positive thing. Yeah. So. Jetem, Jetem. When I first saw this one, I went, oh my God. I think Michelle Gondry stole this movie. No, no, not. No, no, totally. (laughs) I was thinking that same thing. I mean, he obviously did something very different, but like there are definitely, yeah, a lot of inspiration here. 
And also, I think of it as like, what if Renee were to make his own adaptation of Slaughterhouse Five? Um, only instead of like focusing on the trauma of you know what writer Kurt Vonnegut went through during the war, it, this time it's more about the struggles of being in a long-term relationship that dissolves. Like that again. As much as his interest in identity and memory is imbued throughout, I think, most of his work, here he's also concerned with just time, the passing of time, and the fact that we're all stuck inside of it. You know, I mean, that's why we all mm-hmm. have daily planners and clocks and Google calendars. <laughs> we have to, we're, we're slaves. We had to decide what time we're going to talk for the podcast, right? <laughs> <laughs> Um, so I think that's, you know, that's certainly a component of what, you know, what he's tackled in, in some of his short films and, uh, just, yeah, I, I, it it almost feels like it's inevitable for him to do a time travel kind of a movie, but this is more or less like science fiction and, you know, like an out, 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 you know, pretty much all out kind of genre for him exercise, like a genre exercise for him. Which really yeah. surprised me, and really, I I kind of love this movie, you know, almost as much as his first two. Really, uh, mm-hmm. I guess it, I guess a lot of that is just because I like time travel movies, but um, it it does feel personal to the point of it, you know, like this character that we're following, he's not able to you know live with what he's done and certainly not being in love anymore or feeling love anymore. It's just this nonlinear impressionism that sort of flips back and forth and onto itself that I just really like experiencing, even if it's jarring or at times like caught in a loop, like he keeps ending up in that ocean, uh, you know, trying to like come up from, from the water like that, that image just keeps popping up throughout, uh, I guess it was sort of a collaboration again with an interesting uh, writer, uh, Jacques Sternberg. And basically him and Renee like fashioned this script out of 800 pages (laughs) of writing that Sternberg sort of like compiled over, over time, like as these short fragmented scenes. And some of it was like autobiographical which is really wild. And, you know, I think, I mean, I think that's also what Gondry actually asked of Kate Winslet and Jim Carrey to do too, is to incorporate like a couple of real life experiences into the film, which Mm -hmm. was, you know, almost like therapeutic for them, but also very difficult. Yeah. So like you, you get a little, like little glimpses of him being out of time and displaced and dislocated and jumping back and forth. But it's not like he has the awareness that he's time traveling. You know, it's not like it stops and he goes, Oh, wait a minute. This we're, we're basically like just living inside the memory and watching him play it out as opposed to like other time travel movies where the character obviously knows that he's unstuck in time. So it's, it's a very different kind of, time travel movie in that way. Uh, in a way that I think Renee does quite successfully. Uh, and of course you gotta love a movie. You know, I, I'd be remiss in not bringing up the fact that, uh, you know, Katrine's proposal that mankind was created in order to take care of cats. 
Um, oh, I was going to bring that up too. That's such a special anecdote. <laughs> <laughs> That's when I went, oh boy. Yeah, he kind of made this movie for me, didn't he? No, but I just, <laughs> no, I love this movie and I, I'm assuming you do as well. Yeah, I do. Um, I And I loved a lot of the same things, like obviously the monologue about the cats and how people were created to serve them. That was the gist of it, right? Yeah. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I mean... I, and the also the sequence that you brought up where he's wading through the water. Yeah. I think it's just like a really that's that recurrent image is just like really beautiful. Um and like just sort of represents like this like being out of side outside of time to me because like of the way he's moving against the current and the way the shot captures that um the way he's moving against the current, uh, it just seems like he's sort of like floating. And I just like really love that recurrent shot. Um, but I also, yeah, I, I just like thought of eternal sunshine so much when I was watching it, especially in the scenes where um, his dreams start to mesh with the memory. Mm. And he talks about this dream he has of like a woman in a bathtub, I think it is. Oh yeah. And like um, an office desk yeah yeah and at a certain point like we actually see that happening and then like at certain points i think he even starts to talk to to his girlfriend or wife um about about things that he sees that like weren't in the memory um and the mice that he's like that are from the research lab he sees every once in a while. Yeah, the, um, yeah. He sees the mouse on the beach at one point and actually calls it out. It's like, hey, there's a mouse here. That's weird. Yeah. Oh, that was what I was thinking of. Yeah, he's with his girlfriend on like the beach on a blanket, and he's like, oh, there's a mouse, and she's like, what? <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. I. I think philosophically, I really like everything about this movie, and it really made me start thinking about just sort of Renee's whole filmography and how he really thinks about cinema. Um, I was like writing down notes. I was like, I was like, Oh, like he thinks like cinema is time travel. I was like, no way. Like memory is time travel. <laughs> no way. Like editing is time travel. And like, I think <laughs> like that's true in all in this movie, like all of those things that um, he really thinks this is when it became clear to me, even though I think he does this in all of his movies that like, um, he really thinks of the cinematic apparatus and the brain very like anagolously. <laughs> is that the word? Um, he just, I think recognizes the way that cinema has changed the human memory mm. in a way in that, like, I think if you've seen a lot of movies, Oh, my cat just hopped up here. Um, oh, well, you know, he's a big fan of this movie for obvious yeah. reasons. Um, but I think in terms of like uh, an art that is closest to the way that the human mind works, I definitely think Renee was like, well, that's cinema. And so let's see like what we can do with this comparison. Um, and I feel like that's what this movie is really about. And I appreciate that a lot. Um, it just like not like outside of plot and everything of which it's like pretty slim. I just felt like in a lot of ways I was like, Oh, this is just how this is the clearest articulation I think in a movie of how like the mind works. 
mm-hmm. or at least how my mind works or like when I'm daydreaming or dreaming. Um, I just think it's a really interesting document of just like psychology in a way that like I really love. Um, and I mean, it's an experience like all of his movies, but it also just like really um, makes you think. And I think when I say Renee's movies are like a puzzle, I think they really activate, they really activate you in that way where you're not just, you can't just totally be passive. You have to be kind of constructing. And I don't know if that's always constructive or not, but. Yeah. You, you have to be an active participant in the experience and just sort of, I mean, subjectivity is also something I think he's fascinated by and just like how it's kind of overwhelming. You know, there there's pleasures and there's dangers that come with just the personal experience and what you bring to a movie or to another person. I mean, I think that's also what this movie is about is like bringing yourself into the life of another person and how it's often contradictory or how it's often paradoxical or just like, I feel this way. You don't feel this way, but let's try and make it work. <laughs> and sometimes that works out and sometimes it doesn't. And sometimes people can get past their differences and work through them. And sometimes they can't. Uh, and that's, I mean, again, like I love movies about relationships, whether they succeed or not. And just, you know, whether you can look at something like the before trilogy and how that movie talks a lot about, I mean, Richard Linklater is another filmmaker that is fascinated by time and what it does to the human mind and our expectations to like, you know, what, 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 what happens over time, you know, and, and you're right. And like thinking about editing is almost like time travel and, and figuring out ways to tell a story that, you know, makes sense, but, I think this is more about emotionally making sense too. I mean, a lot of people just kind of go, well, that was a cerebral experience, the end, but I don't know. I still, I, I, I do feel, I mean, he is not always, this guy is not easy to sympathize with at times. You know, he often finds her sort of like neediness and vulnerability a little bit confining. And that's, you know, he's, he can be a dick, you know, but I mean, like a lot of people can be too. Like a lot of people have these selfish moments, but you know, ultimately he can't change anything. And this is also a movie where it's clear that there isn't a, uh, a clear sense of closure at the very end. Um, I mean, I guess one could like say that like, Oh, he's dead, but I don't think so. Right. Like he's like, that's the thing too. It jumps around and I kind of get a little confused by, what exactly happens at the end outside of my own interpretation of like, well, the, the very last shot is the mouse trapped inside there. So that's basically him. He's still trapped inside time. Like there's no, he's, there's no coming back. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's the sense I get. Yeah. Yeah. Cause like, it's a, yeah, it's a perpetual state. Like it's basically like an experiment that didn't work and it's unfortunate for him, but I don't know. I, I, yeah, this is, this is a really interesting movie and you put it in a very interesting context of it being about something more than just like a failed relationship that, you know, he gets, he gets to relive and try to figure out in some way. 
because even even some people say like oh the very ending of eternal sunshine just means like it's not like hopeful necessary. Like they're going to keep repeating the same mistakes. That's why there's that shot of them kind of like in a loop at the very end of the movie. So it's, it's like saying like, yeah, they're, they're together and they're going to keep trying, but they're going to keep messing up because they're imperfect humans, you know? Uh, and yeah, I just, I often find it interesting when I think of what filmmakers are trying to say about their process or filmmaking within a movie, because I mean, I know it's certainly come up way before something like I, you know, when I saw Inception. But when I saw Inception, when I walked out of that movie, I was like, "That was that was a, a pretty great film about Christopher Nolan as a filmmaker." You know, like mm-hmm. just, and a lot of people have said that since. But I honestly really felt that way about it when I saw it, and made that, and it made it for a more interesting experience too than just being like, "Oh, it's an escapist action movie about dreams and eight point A to point B to point C." But I, I really do think he was like, whether consciously or not, telling a story about his process, which made it interesting. And you're sort of saying that about Renee and and in, in this film. Yeah, I think I am sort of saying that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I, I, I really like that, too, because it adds a whole other layer. Um, so why don't you talk a little bit about provenance? Because you had a really interesting correlation um, that I mean, I, I thought of something, too. But I'm this was this was an interesting like movie to track down. And the only reason why I wanted to was really was like, oh, it's his first English. It's his only English language film. <laughs> and yeah. the cat and the cast. I was just like, I got I got to find this. And it's, it hasn't gotten like a proper Blu-ray release. But I'm hoping that changes because it really needs to be seen and restored. And um, even my experience of watching it, I thought like, well, if this was even higher quality, I might have even liked it even more. But um, tell me about your experience with this because I don't think you'd seen it before either, right? Nope. This is the first time I've, I've seen that one. Um, and I was, I was excited to watch it because I like really love Elaine stretch. <laughs> um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. but it also had Ellen Barkin who's, who's fun. Um, Ellen Burstyn, Ellen Barkin, Ellen Burstyn. I think is, yeah, oh that's okay. Yeah. It happens. <laughs> similar, similar name, very different actress. Um, Yeah. yeah. But I think it was interesting. I feel like all their performances were very subdued. Yeah. In a I way know. that like I was like what I was kind of confused about that. So the performances like weren't exciting to me, but um the the content of the movie really was. I really liked the idea of this um of this act sorry, not actor, of this writer just sort of using um, the people closest to him in his life as like playthings in like a narrative that sort of um, just like dealt with his feelings about all of them in various ways, um, but didn't utilize them in ways that were like actually accurate to <laughs> who they were in real life. So my, my perception of this movie and why I compared it to Mulholland Drive is that I feel like the first like two thirds of it are him just kind of going wild in his imagination and the last third is sort of more close, closest, but not entirely like his actual reality um, where all of these people just come to visit him on his birthday and have like a pretty normal time. Um, and up until then, it's a lot of weird things with um, there are men, like hairy men creeping in the woods, getting shot. And like, <laughs> oh, right. Yeah. And um, 
people running around with guns and shooting people um, very dramatic. And he'll just sort of like switch people out very suddenly. He'll be, he'll be like, Oh, what happens if this character's in here instead, which is just very, um, very real to like (laughs) the creative process. I think if you're writing, um, and so I really enjoyed that. And I also, I just really enjoy anything that's sort of about art, which I felt like this movie was just sort of about um, narrative making. Yeah. And I really enjoyed the way he talked about that. Um, and it was very dreamy. And yeah, I just like, I felt like I saw a lot of David Lynch in there Um but especially with the way that the first part is very strange and playful. And the second part is like kind of more, more realistic maybe. Um, But yeah, that was how I felt about it. Yeah. Um, Returning again to preoccupations of perspective (laughs) Um, and just like, see, sometimes I, I agree and I've said this before too, but you know, in the film adaptation, Brian Cox plays Robert McKee and says, don't use voiceover narration. It's such a crutch, you know? And sometimes like that's, that's something that Renee does throughout a lot of his work. Uh, mm-hmm. And it doesn't really, it doesn't really bother me. Um, like, no, I like it because it, um, <laughs> I just feel like it calls attention to sort of like, it's just another voice in this like plurality of voices that are sort of sometimes like contrasting with what we're actually seeing. So I kind of like it when he uses the voiceover. Yeah. Yeah. And, and here I think it serves a valuable purpose to, for us to get inside the writer's head and his creative process. Uh, and yeah, that, it makes it more sense. I mean, it, it feels a little bit more traditional and not as visually ambitious, which is kind of what surprised me the most to where, I was that like, is true. I was yeah. kind of like, huh, it's, it reminded me a little bit of the singing detective, the uh, Dennis Potter miniseries to where I thought, Oh, this is, this right. could- it does have sort of a made for TV kind of visual look. <laughs> yeah. And that's kind of yeah. why I was like, I don't know if, I, I don't know if I would get a different feeling or experience of seeing this like restored or something. Cause I don't, I mean, it's not, it's not last year at Marion bad or another f- like film that's more playful with its visual palette, I guess you could say, but I mean, it's, it's interesting. And I certainly was engaged by it. And I certainly thought like just the concept of watching, you wow. know, this aging writer lying in bed, trying to work through, you know, the story and like his perspectives of his own family are very different <laughs> than, what we get when we finally see them towards the end. It's kind of like, it's weird that like in in his head, like there's all this tension and conflict and questions about everyone's relationship. And and you're right. in saying like a lot of the acting here is far more subdued than I would expect. Um, like, again, I guess it was like, if you're going to have Elaine stretch, like really use her, but yeah. (laughs) Or Dirk Bogard from, Oh yeah. Actually he's, he does pretty well though. He's pretty flamboyant. Yeah, no, he's yeah. he's he's very good, and it, and it, it, it's kind of interesting because um, I forgot which like uh, special feature I was watching 
that said that this Joseph Losey movie with Dirk Brigard called Accident is hugely inspired by Renee. So now I'm like, oh, great. I got I to gotta add that to my watch list. Because <laughs> yeah. I love Dirk Brigard in... Um, uh, ah, now I just threw, drew a blank. Oh, The Servant. The Servant is one of my favorite <laughs> movies, and Joseph Losey did that. So anyway, it all sort of ties together, and it's, and it's great casting. Uh, but yeah, I was expecting a little bit more from Ellen Burstyn, to be honest. Um, yeah. And it's not to it's say like she's bad. It's like to be more French or something, and they were just like... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, but it's like, it's it's one of those movies where, again, like I, I wasn't like fully like awestruck or intoxicated by it, but I found it really interesting just to watch and experience and, and sort of... The big surprise sort of comes at the end when it's like the real world scenes are actually kind of, uh, you know, sunny and idyllic and <laughs> pleasant. Mm-hmm. It's 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 again like subverting my expectations. It's another inversion of like, oh, uh, turns out that uh, things aren't as dark and conflicting as, I, you know, we were led to believe, you know, but that's that's because he's creating this alternate world this alternate storyline for all of these people that have been in his life for so long. And that's, I imagine that's very true of a lot of storytellers that they take, you know, bits and pieces from their own personal lives and put them into the, into the actual art that they're creating and maybe a lesser version. Although, I mean, again, like I, I, I'm, I'm conflicted about bringing his name up, but I couldn't help but think a little bit about uh, Woody Allen's, deconstructing Harry a little bit too, because uh, in that film, he basically does the same thing and just like takes people from his own life, literally just to create stories and people get mad (laughs) at him Mm -hmm. for doing that. And I always found that movie to be an interesting insight into the creative process, but it's, you know, it's Woody Allen. He's self-indulgent and blah, 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 blah. And we don't need to talk about him anymore. Um, but like Renee's version of something like that, where he creates this contrast between the fictional and real world sort of counterparts is just really kind of a fun, like, yeah, less heavy experience than what I'm used to from, from him. And it's, yeah, I don't know. I, I wouldn't say it's like upper tier, like must see. Renee, but I think it's worth tracking down and trying to find, and hopefully somebody somewhere will restore it and maybe give it new life in the future. Yeah. But, but it's, yeah, no, I liked it. I definitely liked it, and maybe I was primed or expecting a little bit more based on, but I could see, like, again, the influence on things I love, like even Charlie Kaufman, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Again, but... So you had an early experience with Wild Grass. You wrote a review on your uh, wonderful blog that you used to have. (laughs) Yeah. I really enjoyed the review. And revisiting it, what did you think of Wild Grass? Um, (laughs) I'm I'm conflicted myself. It's um what a strange movie it is. It's so strange. Um, I don't know. I think I have like, I haven't seen maybe enough of Renee's later movies to actually say this for sure, but I feel like, um, at a certain point he sort of turned away from like these super political films and just started making films about like 
I don't, well, what is what is even this one about? Um, <laughs> That's what I was about, thinking. Yeah, that are just more playful. But then that doesn't seem right either because this one also has like, I didn't, I don't think I remembered, I did not remember this from the first time I watched it, but like the main character, um, well, there's two. Maybe I should summarize it first for anyone who hasn't seen it, but it's just kind of like um, this woman played by Sabina Azima, who I think was married to Renee at one point. Mm-hmm. Or I think they were married or they just worked together a lot, but I think they were married. Um, Yeah. Um, So she like loses her wallet and this, this other guy finds it. And based on finding it, he like picks through it and kind of constructs this like elaborate, he constructs an idea of who she is based on this wallet um, and like sort of falls in love with that idea. Um, and then Vic very aggressively pursues her. <laughs> and then at first she's put off by this, but then I think something about that pursuit um, intrigues her a lot and she becomes more like open to it. Um, but yeah, I guess I was saying that like Hiroshima is a romantic movie. I think this is a pretty romantic movie in its way, although it's very strange. And there's like just lots of like little details in it that like, kind of come up and then disappear, which I think is fascinating. Like mm. where the George, I think is the guy's name who finds the wallet. Um, he has like an internal monologue that you hear and he says some stuff that leads you to believe that he's like actually a criminal in hiding or that he like has like done, he's like murdered people potentially or done really violent things. <laughs> but yeah. this like comes up for like a brief moment and disappears and you never hear about it again. Um, which I think is like kind of amazing um, because it really makes you wonder about what's going on with this relationship. Um, But like, I don't know. There's still like a strong eroticism between the two protagonists. I think that I respond to a lot Um, and it's very strange. Um, I don't know. I recommend seeing it for anyone who hasn't. It's like one of his last movies. And, oh, I needed to talk about this, that he, his last four films, I think, were scored by Mark Snow. Because it turns out that Renee was an X-Files fan, which I love. (laughs) Um, And I think that's, like, really important to know. (laughs) Um, But, yeah, that also makes the mood of this film very strange, that it's scored by Mark Snow so it's very supernatural seeming to me because I'm so kind of like entrenched in the X-Files as a like a cultural phenomenon um Mm. oh yeah yeah. I'm curious I'm curious about your thoughts about it was this your first time seeing it or had you seen it before um yeah it it was my first time seeing it and and speaking of Mark Snow I I I was remiss in not bringing up that uh Christoph Penderecki did the score for Jetem Jetem and that's mm, a really, really okay. great score and an incredible composer, but yeah. And, and also I'd be remiss in not mentioning the fact there's a lot of, I wouldn't say a lot, but like, I, you know, like seven or eight movies in between Providence and wild grass that, um, I either didn't see because I didn't hear good things or they were just hard to find. But at some point, yeah, I would be curious to track more of his work down, but these, th- the ones I kind of, handpicked here felt like I would say the more essential ones that uh, at least stood out or at least I read were like, Oh, these are interesting. You should check them out. Not to say that the other ones aren't, but um, you're absolutely right in that 
it's almost like he lightened up with age <laughs> um, and like got more playful and embraced like a dark comedic side as opposed to like just, yeah, you know, I, I mean, Jatem Jatem isn't necessarily like so bleak, but you know, his early work definitely is for good reason because that's the point in time and what the stories he was trying to tell. But with something like wild grass, I was a little perplexed in what was happening, where things were going, why people were doing what they were doing. And that's often happened in like Godard films where I'm just like, why did they make that choice? Okay. What, why is this happening? Um, again, it could just be an experience of like, I just have to go with this and not question like, why did, why is this character doing this? Or why is suddenly, you know, he, he is being, you know, like thought of, or get privy to the fact that he might be a murderer and that doesn't fall in line with everything else that came before it. But, um, I didn't follow every plot point, but I also think that's beside the point of a lot of his work. Mm-hmm. Um, this is, this is kind of his take on a, yeah, like, like a curb your enthusiasm episode. Cause he was a big fan of Larry David, believe it or not. Um, <laughs> Like oh, that doesn't surprise me. That's fun. Yeah, I know. It's just kind of unexpected to say the least when I sat down to watch this, where like even just the slow motion of the purse, I was like, oh, that's kind of whimsical. <laughs> like, I mean, just like little things throughout this movie, I thought, well, those were that was an interesting decision, or the the stuck zipper, or oh my god. I, I mean, I, I guess I just. Most of most of most of the time I'm watching this with a question mark over my head, but that wasn't I like I wasn't unengaged by it or I wasn't like not enjoying it. I just kind of went, hmm, I don't know. I don't know how I feel about this. It's it's like it's sometimes he treats movies like jazz where I don't know if he knows exactly where it's gonna end up or you know, the right key that it's <laughs> that it's in or something. Like mm-hmm. it's just kind of moving as it, as it, you know, like he sort of finds the movie as it goes on and we, we're just expected to go with it, even if we can't necessarily f- find a central thesis or a, a theme that we're supposed to hold on to. I did feel like it was a little meandering and again, hard to make sense of character intentions, but I also have to admit, like you mentioned the the very end of this movie where I was like, why did you end that way? But I loved it anyway, where we just have that um, random farmer's daughter who we see for the first time and just asking mommy, when I'm a cat, will I be able to eat cat munchies? (laughs) Like what? (laughs) That's the final shot. That's the final line of this movie. I mean, it's kind of like nonsensical, but I don't know. I don't know. Like sometimes intentional weirdness that feels disjointed it, it, it can be still fun and in, interesting. And even if I don't know what the purpose of this story ultimately is, I mean, you do bring up the fact that there is like a sense of longing and desire between the two people here, even if it's not necessarily fully realized, I just think that's there. Like there's a sense of romance, even if it's kind of like an awkward one. <laughs> um, mm. So that's there for sure. But like, there's also just at times the 20th century Fox fanfare shows up 
Like, I don't know if he's making a commentary about, you know, just romantic comedies and cinema or something like, like just like at one point, like I think they're, they might even be like embracing. And then suddenly we hear the 20th century Fox theme out of nowhere. And I'm kind of like, what, what? (laughs) Okay. That's kind of fun and playful and weird and interesting. Um, I didn't miss that, but that's really funny. Yeah. It's just, it is strange. I don't know. Cause it's like a stalker movie too. I don't, I don't know what to make of it. I, I'll watch it again at some point, but I don't know if I fully got it. <laughs> right. And then there's the whole, um, like title, which every once in a while, um, yeah. there's like these panning shots of like manicured lawns and then other panning shots of like, I think it's the grass that's growing on the runway that mm. she buys her plane from. Right. Um, and I don't, I don't really quite know like exactly what he was trying to say with the wild versus manicured grass. Um, yeah, it's a very puzzling movie. And the last, the last scene that you were talking about, I don't know. It's almost like he's joking somehow about how you're probably going to be watching this like on YouTube and something weird is going to pop up right after it. That like completely changes the context of it. I don't know. Like when I, that's just what I was thinking right now. I was like, that just seems like something that would pop up if you were watching YouTube. Like, (laughs) um, I don't know, just like really random and completely disjointed from, from the other video you were watching, (laughs) but I have no idea. It's so curious and I still don't really know what to make of it. And I also don't know what to make of like right before then, let's say, um, yeah, she the the two people who have been chasing each other this whole movie end up in a plane together because she's a pilot. Um, <laughs> yeah, right. And this is part of part of what he, he is drawn to in her because he sees her pilot license in her wallet, um, and I think he's like um, an aficionado of old planes, so they have a connection in that way. Um, but he lets her drive, or no, she lets him drive the plane once they're up there, but his fly is down. <laughs> <laughs> and um this causes like havoc for them in the sky um they're just like flying all over the place and then it's unclear whether they survive that <laughs> yeah yeah which is a total curb your enthusiasm kind of scenario like of yeah that happening and it being really uh weird <laughs> and like it's it's confusing and kind of funny but i also go all right I mean, this this is just kind of his version of a, you know, romantic comedy, I guess, in a way. But yeah, I mean, there's there's like kind of a screwball, yeah, um, energy to it. <laughs> like instead of I don't, yeah, I guess like instead of um, the train going through the tunnel, you get the the plane doing loop de loops in the sky. But what's that <laughs> supposed to mean? It's funny. I don't know. Another enigma that uh, maybe at some point in the future I'll revisit and be like, oh, yeah, I kind of get it now. Or it's just supposed to be, you know, fun and, you know, you don't have to necessarily have deep thoughts about it or something. It's just an experience. And uh, he's really good at crafting unique ones for sure. And his penultimate work was a film that um, 
I, I thought I thought I'd seen it. It's it's funny because like this is around the time where I'm trying to keep up with all the awards contenders or things that are making top ten lists of that year, and I remember seeing it pop up. Um, I think even on Mike D'Angelo's list, who's a critic I follow and really enjoy. Uh, but I, I guess I'd never seen it before. It just it was like a uh, I had like one of those weird moments of watching it. I was like, have I seen this before? I don't think I've seen this before. <laughs> Wait, I had that same experience. That's so strange. Yeah, it is um, weird. Yeah, because I was like, have I seen this before? And I I really can't remember if I have. I still don't know. But it's yeah, it's funny that you felt that way too. Yeah, and it's funny because memory again, uh, showing up in the work of Renee, like uh, as we're talking about it, like, hmm, yeah, interesting. I don't know if like it, it just ultimately becomes this meta experience with his work, but this is yeah his penultimate work and it and it does feel like kind of an interesting summation in playing you know with art and artifice and certainly the the French actors that show up in this film he's worked with throughout a lot of his career and man this setup I just couldn't help but think of Clue because like they're they're all receiving Clue yeah they're receiving a phone call requesting they come to this mysterious place and they'll all receive something maybe, or I don't know. Like, it's just the way it's set up. I was like, Oh, this is kind of, kind of a, a really fun way to kick things off. And, you know, it's sort of a who's who in terms of, you know, names that are there and actors that have been a part of his work throughout the years. And again, it does have like some, some sort of meta layers going on, but yeah. So it's, you know, basically about a guy is, you know, it's going to pass away and, he wants everybody that he's worked with in the past to come in to this screening that he's holding of a play that he's filmed of a bunch of young actors performing. And I, I, it's, it's yeah, again, like with Renee, it, it does sort of harken back to probably his earliest experiences working in theater or having an avid interest in theater. Um, and then during the actual screening taking place, everybody watching this film or yeah, watching the film on the screen. Gosh, this sounds like I'm confusing myself at this point, but they're all sort of overwhelmed by what they're seeing that they start to perform it together in the space that they're in. Uh, Mm -hmm. If that all makes sense, hopefully, but everything becomes interwoven, the play, the film, the actors, the scene, the scenery, you know, um, suddenly it's like on a big sound stage and, layers of performance and and memory topple over one another. And yeah, I just, I think it's, it's really like a fun, interesting exercise that I don't know if I would call it essential Renee, but it's just, I kind of enjoyed the experience of watching all these actors get excited about performing again. You know, mm-hmm. I think I think that's kind of the joy of of this movie. In a way, it's like Renee's take on Vanya on Forty Second Street, the Louis Mal film. So it's mm-hmm. you know, like for those who love theater and French cinema, this is almost like a beautiful marriage in in a really interesting way. Uh, that uh, I found mostly just kind of a a fun experience, even if it's not like deep or profound in the way like his early work is. I almost feel like he just got kind of, kind of got lighter and l- I don't want to say less intellectual as he got older, but just 
like this is kind of more of him embracing what he loves about storytelling and the many layers and different things that can take place. Yeah, I think I think his um his interest in performance is like a thing that is um it's there in all of his work, but this one felt like the most like of all the one I'd seen just kind of like about performance. Yeah. Um, and I, it was thought provoking. I, I also thought I was like, I didn't need as much of it as there was. It was like, this could have been a little shorter. And I think I, I agree with that. Yeah, totally. <laughs> it didn't it, as it, much out of it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but I like, I did appreciate it a lot. I appreciated that. Like, he had in one movie, like three different people playing each part. There were like the people playing it on the screen that they're watching. And then like two different actors playing each part who are yeah. watching it. Um, and it just kind of flowed between all of them. Um, and it did make me think a lot about like what a character is and like how uh, a character becomes real through different means, um, like whether you're reading it or saying it out loud um, and just like the different qualities that all the performers brought to that character. Um, and it was like, I think it was good that, I don't know if it was, a, is this a real play? I know it's based on the Greek myth, but I don't know if the play itself. I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. Real. It's a good question. Um, but I think I appreciated that it was based on a Greek myth. That's pretty well known. Um, mm-hmm. So that you don't have to like reach too much to like understand what they're talking about. Um, and it's like, it's a really interesting myth. And like, uh, it shows up in Portrait of a Lady on Fire too, I think, and is interpreted in a very different way, which oh, I think right. is cool. Yeah. Um. So I like I like that he utilized that myth. Um. And yeah, like I like I said, I feel like I didn't need as much of it as there was, but I really appreciated like the thought space it put me in and how it made me think about theater and acting and performance in general. Um, and just how, like, I think the when he hones in on performance, he's just very interested on not just in, like, artistic performance, but using that as a way to analyze how people perform in everyday life, which I think is very cool. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but it was, I've never seen anything quite like it. I have to say that. Yeah, I agree. I, I kind of felt like this is really unique and unlike any portrayal of, I mean, outside of Vanya on 42nd street is basically just the same actors, but they've been, they basically have been rehearsing the same play for a long time. And suddenly the rehearsal becomes what we're seeing being filmed right before our eyes. And the whole play just is basically played out in a really interesting way. Like, I think there is a break in reality. Like that's, that's kind of a like that to me is like that is the movie about theater and performance that really I mean sticks with me to this day probably because I saw it in an impressionable time like maybe late 90s or something where mm. I was just starting to understand a lot more about film and filmmaking and then I saw that and I was like oh this really makes me think more about acting and performance and just what it takes and how people get completely lost in their characters in some ways and and here it's a, like a celebration of that process and and it's clear that Renee has respect for the actor and what it all means and what it, like and certainly just just the fact that a lot of these people are not 
uh, you know, the appropriate age, I guess you would say for the roles that that's actually something I wanted to talk about, or like I was thinking about watching all of his movies is that like, um, I don't know. I mean, this isn't necessarily what you were thinking, but I was just really impressed by the fact that he features older people so often Mm. and that like, in romantic and, and sexual scenarios where he's not, he like doesn't forget that like older people like still have like sexual energy and that like, it's not any different. And that like, I just really appreciate that he treats older women and older men as like still being sexy and vital. Like it's not a question to him. And I like, I just like really liked that about his whole filmography. Yeah. Full of passion. There's still, there's still, you know, feeling a sense of connection towards, you know, one another, but also just hear the artistic process and performance and what it all means to get together and have a sense of community. I think that's really kind of, kind of beautiful. I mean, I I imagine that people who are really uh, invested in theater will get even more out of the, out of watching this outside of like, we both talked about, it probably could have been maybe 10 or 15 minutes shorter and had it even stronger, tighter running time. And maybe I would appreciate it even more, but um, it's, it's, it's certainly like, like a stimulating experience of getting to see people like reconnect to their art and feel a sense of joy doing it. And that's inspiring. Like this could, this could definitely like inspire anybody in the theater world to like feel reinvigorated. Like, like I want to go, I want to go and put on a play, you know, after seeing this, I I can imagine that can happen for sure. And it felt very, it felt very playful and small, which is another thing I liked about this movie. Like he just sort of got a bunch of friends together, which is what it seems like they were because they're all people he's collaborated with closely on Mm -hmm. um, throughout his career. It seems like he just got a bunch of friends together um, and was like, let's have fun with this. Um, Cause it's really, it really mostly takes place in one room right. that has like some different staging areas, but um, yeah, it seemed very small scale and just kind of like a fun experiment that he was doing with friends that I appreciated. So it's like, not like a huge important film, but I, I feel like he had a lot of fun with it <laughs> and I, I really liked that about it. It just felt very fun. Yeah. And I think that's, what's kind of, interesting as we've talked about is this with age he, he his work became more fun in in some ways and i don't know if that means more accessible we haven't seen every single thing but it, it's just curious to me that you know he as time went on didn't feel like oh the world and humanity things are getting worse <laughs> he's yeah. not weary or just like uh you know, like like a curmudgeon or something. He's kind of like finding beauty and a lot to appreciate about art and self-expression and, and filmmaking and all these things that we love. But I, I feel like, yeah, maybe over time he just kind of said, yeah, I, 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 I've told some pretty dark and heavy stories and dealt with trauma quite a bit. Maybe now I'm just going to, yeah, let, let a story unfold and not think that it has to be this, you know, enigmatic puzzle (laughs) that his early work was because he's already been there and did and had that approach. 
But I bet like some like diehard fans might find, you know, his w- later work maybe a little bit slight in some regards too. Like me, I was kind of primed for more puzzles. <laughs> yeah. And that's not to say like these are bad movies either. They were just different and unexpected and interesting in their own right, for sure. Well, that's why I feel strange about Wild Grass because like I was saying, when I was watching it, I was like, I don't know, this seems like almost like frothy and like not very serious. But then afterward, especially after that jarring ending, it just, I like was forced to kind of sit with it and think about it. Mm-hmm. And I don't know that I came to any conclusions, but like some of the imagery and like the thoughts that I had watching it just stuck with me a lot more than I thought they would. Um, and the same with Providence and really all of them. But I just think, yeah, I think he was still very serious and very intellectual um, and just sort of started focusing on like maybe just like more about what art does instead of mm. um, focusing on uh, like history and trauma. Like maybe he'd gotten that out of his system a little bit. Yeah. Um, yeah. I like that. I like that. Cause I mean, you ain't seen nothing yet is more of like a, like we've talked about more of an experiment or formal exercise, which to me doesn't make it like an essential work. If you're trying to understand Renee's place in film history. But it's still it still has its pleasures. It's still worth seeing. It's still got you know, like I mean, some people would have even thought like, well, if this is his last movie, this is probably a good place to end things. You know, mm-hmm. it could be like it it could feel like a swan song in a way. But even at the time, like it might have been at one of those film festivals that he showed it as like, oh no, I'm I I don't want to quit just yet. Don't think this is my last movie. Like he didn't want to commit to that. And he did make one more after this that I haven't seen called Life of Riley. That was his oh, uh, yeah. last film. But this is all making me think of one other thing that I like I was thinking about. I was as I was watching his movies, like one other theme that I noticed is that he became sort of preoccupied, I think, with um dying and the duration of death. Mm. Um, I feel like this is a theme that came up in a bunch of them. And I feel like it sort of played out in his own filmography in a way where he, I don't know. I feel like that might've been why he got a little lighter. He was like, I don't know exactly, but it, um, in Providence, that's a major theme. I feel like, Oh, sure. And I feel like it came up elsewhere too, or he's just kind of like, it makes you think about what, yeah. Like when, when is it that you start dying exactly? Like, (laughs) and when, (laughs) and it's a good question. I don't know. Um, Like there's a point where you get maybe that like a diagnosis and I think, Oh, I think this came up in Jatem also. And maybe that's, I think, his girlfriend in that also has sort of a terminal illness. Right. Um, Yeah. Just like the quality of living, the quality of dying. And when you sort of make the distinction between the two Um, and like for someone who's obsessed with time, it's just like, it's a pretty logical thing to think about, I guess. Oh, absolutely. Um, Yeah. 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 Especially like, what what it means when our time is up and 
how we don't always know when that'll be. And it's, it's, yeah, it's like, it's, 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 there's a lot of heavy thoughts that can come with some of his later films too. And I'm not dismissing them as slight. I just feel like maybe it's possible that some people could come away with that because you're primed to think one way about his work. And then suddenly it kind of shifts into something else. It doesn't mean like the themes aren't still there. It's just the, the, the execution is very different. Um, and I still found it intriguing to where I know we couldn't and didn't cover every single title, but I'm certain that there will be at least a few more within my lifetime that I'll, I'll want to check out and see, especially since, you know, kind of last minute, um, a coworker of mine at work mentioned a short film that he made, which is, uh, of course, I'm not going to bother trying to pronounce the French title, but it, the English translation is all the memory in the world. Mm. It, and it is about the national library of France. Oh, wow. And that's why I wanted you to watch this with Maureen, but, don't it wasn't it wasn't a big obligation don't worry about it but it is unbelievably great like i was floored by this because it just like the the score the 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 still shots of people looking at certain departments of the library at one point were just like oh my god they're treating a library like it is everything like it is like we need libraries in order to survive kind of, kind of like a declaration of like all our memories are here in this building. Like just, he made it so profound and like, just kind of like overwhelming. And the score is like so heavy and intense. It's just kind of like, man, I mean the, the idea of libraries at that point, like in the, in the fifties, they were treating them as, more than like a museum, but just kind of like a necessity for humanity. And I know Chris Marker and Agnes Varda collaborated with him on this. So oh, wow, it's oh, yeah, I need to watch it. It's, it's just I loved so I loved it so much. Like it made me so giddy as I was watching it because, of course, they're showing things that I actually work with. You know, like archives and periodicals and maps and just like oh, it, it's library porn. Is what it is. Yeah. <laughs> and it's so enjoyable. And so, and like the, the way the, the narrator is treating this stuff, like it's, you know, <laughs> like everything is like a Bible or something. I don't know. It's just kind of, kind of a remarkable short film that um, I'm pretty sure everybody can just find on YouTube. Uh, I'm, I think it's also available on the, I want to say last year at Marion bad Kino Blu-ray as well. It's like mm. a bonus feature. So, Definitely watch the All the Memory in the World short and, of course, Night and Fog as well, if you haven't. I'm assuming a lot of people have. But, uh, Kate, if you had to rank your top three Renee films, what would they be? Because this is hard. Mm. I mean, I definitely, definitely Hiroshima. Um, I just think that movie is incredibly special. Um, and it's also just as like, I mean... Um, my wife Maureen was watching this with me and she's a photographer and we were, she was just noting like how beautiful the photography in that movie is. And mm. like, it's just very stunning in a way that I don't know that any of his other movies match. Um, although like, yeah, well maybe Marie and Bod, but, uh, I don't know. Everything about that movie is just perfect to me. 
Um, so probably Hiroshima in number one spot. Um, I do think, and I still think that Marie and Bot is probably number two because I love Delphine Seyrig. Um, I think she's just like fascinating to watch in anything that she does. Um, and I think the like sort of incantatory, um, just like fever dream nature of that film is like really incredible to me. Um, what would number three be though? That's a hard position. Um, I feel like I would put Jatem Jatem in that spot. Yeah. Very close. Um, yeah. Man, again, like the same three movies, but the ranking is so hard. Because <laughs> uh, I, I guess it's one of those cases of depending on which one I'm watching, maybe, maybe they're all number one, but uh, I'll go with last year at Marion bad at number three, uh, Hiroshima Matamor at number two and number one, Jatem Jatem. But like, really, I mean, gosh, I mean, they're, they're all masterpieces in my mind, especially the more I go back to them. And I think maybe Jatem Jatem was just like, the biggest surprise when I first saw it in that, like I instantly loved it and I instantly felt a lot while watching it and certainly like just loved the, the structure of it. And I think time travel is fascinating and it does, as we were talking about it more and more too, I was just like, yeah, it does sort of like, it does feel like an encapsulation of his process and the way he thinks and all the things I love about film and filmmaking kind of wrapped up into one. But Gosh, what a what a filmmaker! Good lord! Yeah, <laughs> I really, really, really appreciated diving into Renee because I feel like he really he says a lot of the same things from movie to movie. But sure. He honestly does it very differently from movie to movie. Like he's really trying to figure out like the best way to say it, or like try to find all the different ways to say it through his medium, and it's just very fun, very fun to like hang out with him as a director and just like. Uh, I don't know. It's like reading essays in a way where mm. it's all just very thought provoking. Um, and it just, I don't know if, I don't think he identified it as an auteur really. Um, but no, he actually didn't. I saw like a quick little interview where he's like, yeah, <laughs> yeah, he didn't. Um, which I respect, but, um, I definitely appreciate the perspective. Um, and, just his like certain preoccupations, which I think, I guess I love him because those are also my preoccupations. I think I'm very interested in history and memory and mm-hmm. how those things map onto people, individual people, and also like societies um, and how human emotions play out onto all of that. Um, because it's all, that's like where it all starts. I think it's <laughs> just human emotion Um and so I think, I think he's just a fabulous director and like a brilliant director for really addre- the way he addresses those themes and the way he understands cinema as a medium is just very, um, very special. I would concur 100%. I just, uh, again, I like filmmakers that are more about the feeling and not necessarily like oh, the story has to make sense or everything has to flow together from point A to point B to point C. It's more about what the viewer is feeling, what the characters are feeling. And he's clearly interested in 
that uh, experience of telling a story, but it's just, yeah, there's, there's also just like the complexity of human emotions throughout all of his work, you know, just the guilt, the longing, the displacement, the trauma, all of that, especially like, yeah, his, his early work really kind of sums up even things that we're still feeling and wrestling with and dealing with as a society on this planet (laughs) to this day. You know, I just, like I said, I think it was very interesting almost immediately going from zone of interest in Oppenheimer to watching night and fog and then Hiroshima Mon Amour. I was just kind of like, huh? Yeah, absolutely. I could not stop thinking about night and fog when I was watching zone of interest. Yeah, no kidding. Uh, and it's, yeah, I know people often say, well, what, what else, what kind of, what else kind of stories can you tell about the Holocaust? Blah, blah, blah. And, you know, oh no, you, you still can. <laughs> There's, I don't know. I don't think that's going to go away. I, I, th- I mean, some people can make the argument too, that I think we even talked about this in the last episode about like, is it morally or ethically good to tell a story the way the director of son of Saul decided to tell that story? I, I can't, Mm -hmm. I'm not, I'm not here to cast judgment. I'm, I'm here to experience the work and I certainly found it to be a valuable experience that got to me in every way possible. So again, movies for me are about feelings and the emotional experience. And that's, you'll definitely have one watching something like son of Saul or zone of interest. But, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm grateful that you were, you were game for this. I'm, I'm curious to, you know, next year talk with you again about another filmmaker. It doesn't necessarily have to be French new wave either. So mm-hmm. we'll parse that out over time. We'll figure out what we want to talk <laughs> about next and, you know, maybe we'll see if we can make it in person too, if we can. But if not, I am so grateful for your time and, and what yeah, you brought to I'm the conversation. I'm always, always grateful to be invited. It's always really fun to talk about movies with you. Thank you. I feel the same way. Um, where can people find you? I know you're on Letterboxd. Well, right? I am on Letterboxd and I don't spend a whole lot of time there, um, but I'm always trying to be better about it. So let me see. What is my username? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Hold me accountable. Make me more present on Letterboxd. Um, <laughs> I'll have listeners write to you. Hey, why have you updated your letterbox recently? <laughs> uh, what is my username? I think it's the same as my Twitter username, which is swamp underscore witch <laughs> with the witch, the I and witch being a one. Mm, so that mysterious. Yeah. I'll link to it in the it's, show notes regardless. Okay. <laughs> yeah, we can do that. And stay tuned everybody. Cause like I said, in about a month, you got an epic probably six or seven hour episode um, where Colin Suter and Eric Childress and I, we uh, we get a little wacky and we talk about nearly every film that's come out in a certain year. We go through every month and I just, I can't believe we continue this tradition and uh, it's, it's, it's kind of an intimidating experience, but it's also something I look forward to and value, especially hearing what my friends have to say about films from a certain year and going back to, seeing how we feel about them now is always really interesting because, you know, I just recently rewatched, uh, Leon, the professional, and I don't think I like that movie. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, 
It, I mean, I don't know. I, I don't think I like it either. It's been a long time since I saw it, though. Yeah, there's just I I, I get I, now I feel creeped out and uh, understandably so. But still, it's right. like it, where Natalie Portman's troubles started. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so like that's something that I take into account. So it's interesting to go back now, you know, watching a movie that was made 30 years ago, and you know, there's 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 things like you know, transphobia in Ace Ventura pet detective or, you know, like it's just, it's, it's just, it's just kind of an interesting experience and I'm glad we get to do it. I'm glad, um, you know, it, as kind of daunting it can be. Uh, and certainly we never ever get to every title. It's kind of impossible, but we try just cover the notable ones. And I know people look forward to that episode. I try to edit it far more than I do the regular episodes too, by like inserting clips and trailers and fun stuff and songs from that year. So everybody has that to look forward to, um, in early March. So stay tuned and visit directors club podcast, Dot com and send me an email to directorsclubpodcast at gmail.com. And uh, yeah, I look forward to uh, yeah having Kate back on next year and uh, we'll talk more soon. Thanks everybody for listening. Bye-bye. Bye.